Hey, thanks for being here. Open up your Bible, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. If you were here with us last week, we started 2 Timothy. We'll be working our way through this book of the scripture between now and Easter. If you remember, the Apostle Paul is sitting in prison as he writes this letter to his true son in the faith, Timothy. Paul didn't have biological children. Uh, Timothy was as close to a son as Paul had. More than a son, Timothy is now a pastor. He's not just probably in charge of one church, but many churches. Uh, Timothy traveled with Paul. And so this beautiful blend of father-son relationship, but also partnership in the gospel. And for some reason, Timothy is afraid. We don't know the specifics of why he's afraid. Most likely he's afraid from pressure from within inside the church and pressure from outside the church. The exact same pressure that put the apostle Paul into prison. That's why it says in verse seven, Paul encouraging him for God gave us a spirit, not of fear. So he's afraid of something, but replace fear with these things of power, love and self-control. That's where we ended last week. Verse eight. Therefore, because We shouldn't have a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus." Who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. Which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. And am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Would you take a second and ask God to guide you into truth? Would you ask the spirit of God to open up your eyes and my eyes and our hearts, so that we might see the wonders of his word. Would you take just a second, bow your heads, close your eyes. Let's pray that prayer to God. God, help me see what you have for me tonight. Holy Spirit, we want more than just an education. We want to be transformed into the image of Jesus. So would you help us see the things in your word? And by your power, would you do that? We ask this together. Amen. About 13 and a half years ago, uh, I learned that I was going to be a father for the first time. And I knew instantly that I wanted to be good at one thing. I wanted to be great at embarrassing my kids. And I don't want to brag, but I think I do a pretty good job of it. Uh, there are some downsides of embarrassing your kids. Uh, sometimes uh, Jackson will be at the bus stop when I'm on my way to work. Most of the time he's already gone. The bus has com- come and gotten him. But if the bus is a little bit late, I drive by him standing at the stop with all of his friends. Uh, he's in middle school. And uh, when he sees me coming around the corner, he does this very subtle thing. It looks a little bit like this. And he times it perfectly so that when I'm gone, he has made the full rotation and none of his friends notice why he's just spun in a circle like that. I don't give him a hard time about it. I deserve it. I deserve it. I would have done it if I were him, right? What the Apostle Paul is wondering in his mind and is saying out loud in this letter is, Timothy, are you doing that to me? Are you, are you ashamed of, of me sitting in prison for our Lord? And more importantly, Are are you ashamed of Jesus? Are are you thinking about turning your back on Jesus? Look at verse 8 with me. 
Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. The testimony of our Lord is the life, death, resurrection, and return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is a heated and hostile message. In our day, and especially in the first century, to the Roman Empire in which Paul and Timothy lived, the saying was, Caesar is Lord. Rome is in charge. Rome has power. Rome has order. But the message of the early church, the mantra, the saying when they gathered together was Jesus is Lord. Those two things cannot exist at the same time. The testimony of Jesus was hostile to the Roman Empire. It was hostile to anybody who had power and authority at that time and in this time. Because in our culture and in their culture, the, the idea was serve those who are important. Serve the powerful. Give voice and give ear to those who already have control, who have uh, authority, who can make change, who are in charge of us. But the message of Jesus is once you believe in Christ, you serve the vulnerable. You give voice to those who do not have voice. You work for justice in this world. You look out for the poor. You look out for the broken. You look out for the hurting and the bruised. You can see how the powerful would not enjoy that message. It was hostile to groups of people in the first century who were seeking knowledge. Not just the kind of knowledge that all of us seek, but they believed that if they got enough knowledge, they could get to a higher plane of living. There was a spiritual existence that they could get to if they just knew the right thing. Through wisdom and knowledge, they could order their life and they could order the world. But Christ, uh, the, the message of Christ, the Apostle Paul said, was just simply him crucified. And it is foolishness to those who don't understand, who don't believe. And it is. How can you say that someone is Lord who was crucified as a criminal? Those things don't make sense together. Paul says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Paul was convinced that he was in prison because of his faithfulness to Jesus and nothing else. But there were, you know that old saying, there are two sides to every story. Well, I'm sure there were two sides to why Paul was in prison. Paul's side of the story was it was just being faithful to Jesus. But you know that there were whispers, and Timothy probably heard those whispers, that yeah, Paul is in prison because of Jesus, but if he just had toned it down a little bit, maybe he wouldn't have been in prison. Like, for example, in Acts, there's a story where there was a riot uh, in, in a town, and Paul wanted to rush right in the middle of the riot and tell them about Jesus to explain himself, to help them understand a little bit better. better. But the sisters and brothers in Christ prevented Paul from going in there saying, they're going to kill you if you do that. That was Paul's personality. He was brash. He was bold. He didn't really give any kind of thought to what might happen next. He just rushed in there if he thought it would be helpful to the cause of Christ. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been around a Christian. You, you would say, well, we believe the same things. I just don't want to be near you while you're believing them. And Paul might have been like that. He was sort of crazy. He was brash. He was bold. And so I'm sure that there were rumors among the early church. What percentage of Paul being in prison is about Jesus? And what percentage is just because Paul doesn't know how to read a room? <laughs> and it's probably been a long time since Timothy was with Paul in person. Because of prison, because they've been separated as they pursued their individual callings. And so you know that Timothy has seen up close an eyewitness to Paul's faithfulness to Jesus. But maybe some of those other sides of the story have gotten in his ear. And he's, he's thinking about being embarrassed. He's thinking about 
Well, if Paul were a little less Paul, maybe he wouldn't be in prison. Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So Paul takes it a step further. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Don't be ashamed of me. And I love the way the New English translation puts it. Now you take on your share of the suffering. It's not just share in suffering, but, but Paul's saying, I have done my share. Now it's your turn, Timothy. And Timothy knew that opposition and Christianity always go together. The first time Paul came into Timothy City, if you remember from last week, Timothy lived in a tri-city area, three little towns, Iconium, Derby, and Lystra. The first time that Paul came to Lystra, he preached the gospel. It was hostile, so they picked up big stones. They threw them at Paul's head. They thought he was dead. They drug him outside the city, left him to die. The sisters and brothers came around Paul. They probably prayed and the scripture makes it sound like Paul was resurrected from the dead. Now we don't know if he was dead or he was mostly dead. Was he breathing? Was it a complete miracle? We don't know. But the scripture tells us that Paul gets back up and he goes right back to the very people who had just stoned him. This all happened in Timothy's tri-city area. So years later, Timothy has come to faith. He's a young man with a lot of ministry potential. He knows about Paul. Paul comes to his town. They push Timothy forward. Paul, you need to take Timothy with you. He's very gifted. God has his hand on Timothy's life. He needs to be on your team. So Paul does. The very next few verses in Acts chapter 16, after Timothy leaves with Paul, they go to Philippi. In Philippi, guess what happens? Paul and Silas are arrested, they're beaten with rods and thrown into prison. So from the very beginning, Timothy knew what the stakes were. If I believe in Jesus and I'm active in promoting that, I will experience opposition and suffering. And now Paul is saying, Jesus suffered, I have suffered, now it's your turn. That's hard to hear. It's hard to hear because I can barely hold it together and be faithful when things are easy. The, try to, the thought of trying to be faithful when things are hard that almost seems impossible. That's why it says in the next phrase, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. We're not faithful in opposition because we're such great Christians. Because we have a lot of willpower. It, it only occurs through the power of God. When we think about opposition, a lot of times we think about the Middle East. And there definitely are very difficult places to be Christians in the Middle East. But I've been learning about Africa recently. Africa has such a rich history in the church. Uh, a history of theology and a history of suffering. And there is a wave of persecution sweeping across Africa. Four of the top ten most difficult places to be a Christian are in Africa. And it's on its way up. So you look at a continent like that, how are they doing it? How are they remaining faithful in the midst of some awful and dark persecution? It's not because they have some ingredient that we lack. It's because the power of God is being activated in their life as they suffer. That's why Jesus said in the Gospels to his disciples, don't worry about what you'll say. But the Spirit of God will tell you what to say. You just say that. Verse 9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. It says he saved us. 
The first letter that we have from Paul to Timothy, 1 Timothy in chapter 1, verse 15, it says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. He says this is a saying. This was a common saying. They probably said it when they came to church regularly. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul tells Timothy, you need to embrace that. We say it at church. It's our statement of faith. It's true. And then he adds on the back of whom I am the foremost. I am the first in line of sinners. I am the worst. Jesus said himself that he came to seek and to save that which is lost. He told the religious leaders, the healthy have no need of a doctor. It's the sick who need a doctor. He has saved us and he has called us with a holy calling. I've been asking people this week if you received an invitation, what invitation would make you cancel everything to take it? Right? What person, what group could invite you to lunch and you would cancel your vacation to be at that lunch? Right? So just think about it for just a second. What would you say? What invitation would you do anything to accept? If Michael Jordan called me and said, CJ, I've heard the rumors. I've heard the legend of the 5'9 point guard that tore up the varsity courts of southwest Missouri. And I would like to take you to lunch. I would say, Manda. I will be back whenever Michael Jordan is done with me. (laughs) On the very opposite end of the extreme, if George Strait called me and said, Curtis, come to San Antonio, I would do that. I would first stop and get some Wranglers and a better pair of boots, but I would do that. There are invitations that we would absolutely accept and not only accept, we would do anything to take up. The scripture says that we have been invited. We've been invited into something holy. The God of all creation has called us. But then look what it says, not because of our works, and if you thought of somebody or some group who you would be so honored and blown away that they knew you and invited you, if, if one came to your mind, you almost instinctively said, but that would never happen because I would have to do something miraculous to get onto their radar. I mean, what would it take for this person or that group of people to even know that I exist? And, and I can't imagine doing something like that, that they would even know uh, that I would be worthy of a lunch invitation. Because we connect th- an invitation to being worthy of that invitation almost instinctively and so quickly. So we do the same thing with God. If he's invited me, it must mean that I am worthy of that invitation. I grew up playing sports, so in middle school and high school, when I tried out for sports, I was rarely nervous for that uh, because I had practiced and practiced and practiced and played uh, more hours than I could count. But I was a big fan of not doing regular subjects like math and language and science. And so I did all kinds of extracurricular activities. So I was in the band and I wasn't great at being in the band. I hadn't done that my whole life. And so when I had to audition and try out for those band things, I was incredibly nervous. And we have the same reactions to hearing that we've been invited 
into a holy calling by God. Some of us go to one extreme and say, of course I am invited by God because I am awesome. I mean, I wouldn't say that out loud in church, but I am great at being a Christian. I mean, I don't want to brag, but I'm good at reading my Bible, and I'm good at praying, and I'm good at being kind, and I'm good at telling other people about Jesus, and I'm good at being humble. Those things don't go together, but if they did, if anyone could say out loud, I'm good at humility, it's me. Some of us go to that extreme. Some of us go to the opposite extreme and say, there's no way that he would invite me. I'm not worthy. I don't have anything to offer. I'm pretty sure he doesn't even like me. I mean, he's obligated to love me, but I don't think he likes me. I don't think he has any reason to even know who I am. And the scripture would tell us is that both responses are wrong. And here's why. It's not because of our works, but it's because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Why are we God's daughters and sons? Because God, a long, 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 long time ago, in fact, before there was a long time ago, God made a decision to invite you. Before you could work your way into that invitation, before Adam and Eve could work their way into that invitation, God made a decision according to his own purpose. And none of us are worthy. That's why we need grace. That's why he offers us favor that we have not earned. And none of us are worthy. But we don't spend a lot of time worrying about that because we're here because God made a decision. And so to second guess God's decision is never a good idea. Verse 10, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, and promised return are the fulfillment of a decision that God made before time began Now we can see it though. Now we can see the plan. Now we can see the purpose. Now we can see the grace in Christ Jesus who abolished death. Now how does that work? Because we're still bumping into death. And that's a painful collision. You remember in the Gospels, Jesus actually raised people from the dead. In the Gospel, he was teaching his disciples and prophesying, no one can take my life from me. I lay it down and I have the authority to pick it back up. And that's exactly what happened. When Jesus was crucified, He was not killed. They did not capture him. He laid his life down. And three days later, he decided to take it back up again. The New Testament tells us because Jesus was raised from the dead, all of us will experience resurrection from the dead. Even those those who believe in Jesus will be resurrected to be with Jesus. Then at the very end of the Bible, at the end of Revelation, it says that when Jesus returns, he's going to take death And he's going to throw it into the lake of fire and we won't have to deal with it anymore. Which if you've bumped into death lately is great news. He's abolished death. But also he has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So he hasn't just taken something away. He offers us life and immortality. Most world religions have just two anchors 
on your life's timeline. There is your birth and there is your death. And then there is a big question mark. There's your birth. Everyone is sure about that. No matter what religion you are a part of, you have been born. And you will die and I will die. We're all sure of that. But most people do not have a good answer for what happens next. If you believe in God vaguely, but have not thought about it specifically in terms of Jesus, you're just hoping that it works out. There's a question mark. And most religions in the world and in Houston, it's still a question mark because the idea is whatever happens after death is determined by how you live your life now. But how will you have any confidence? You, how do you know if you've been a good enough person? How do you know if you've done enough good works? Still, there's a question mark. But in the gospel, what God has brought to light in Christ is something different. There's still birth. But after birth, there's a moment. There's a decision where you and I respond to the invitation that God has given us. We've been called into a holy calling. We recognize that. We say yes to that. We connect our lives to the life, death, resurrection, and return of Jesus. We are saved. And then we die. Hopefully it's a long time between birth and death, but we don't get to control that. We die, but we know what's on the other side of death. Our life keeps on going. Death just becomes another marker in our life. It's not the end of our life. It's just another checkpoint for us. So it's okay for us to be scared of the how of death. That's a scary thing. How am I going to die? How are my loved ones going to die? That's a scary and terrifying thing. But followers of Jesus should not be scared of the what. What happens next? We have confidence about that. Because Christ has abolished death. Has abolished, is abolishing, will abolish. And he's given us life, eternal life, immortality. Verse 11, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher. Verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do. So Paul's setting the record straight to Timothy. I know that you've heard the other side of this story. But the reason I'm in prison is because I've preached the gospel of Jesus. I've been an apostle of the gospel of Jesus. And I have helped people understand the gospel of Jesus. Which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed I have not turned my back on Jesus, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He says, I'm convinced. I have an anchor. There's concrete there. I'm convinced that God is able to guard until that day, the day of Jesus' return. What has been entrusted to me. Now in my Bible, there's a little number three at the end of that sentence. You look down at your Bible, see if there's a little number there. If there is, it pushes you down to the bottom of the page. And what you'll find there is uh, scholars really don't know how that sentence goes. They don't know how to interpret it. Is Paul saying God is able to guard what God has given to me? That's what my translation of the Bible says. Your version of the Bible may say the opposite. God is able to guard what I have entrusted to God. So which one is it? Is it Paul is, feels confident God is able to guard what God has given Paul or God is able to guard what Paul has given God? The, the, we're not going to stress out about it tonight because the answer to both is yes. God is able to guard everything he's given us, our salvation. And God is able to guard everything that we've given him, our faith, our life, our works. 
That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, store of treasure in heaven, where moth and rust can't get in and destroy and thieves can't break in and steal. God is able to guard it. No one can get into that safe deposit box. And God is able to guard our salvation. That's why Jesus said in the Gospels, once you're in my hand, there is no one, there is nothing that can snatch you out of my hand. So when Jesus returns, we get to open up that safe deposit box and our salvation will be there. And our reward for being faithful because we've been saved will be there. And Paul was confident about that. But notice what he says. For I know whom I have believed. He doesn't say, I know what I have believed. But in whom I have believed. In Philippians chapter 1, he says, For to me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. And then later on he would say, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. And I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Not a prayer most of us are willing to pray. That's okay. Maybe we'll grow into it. But Paul wanted to know Christ, even if it meant that he was suffering. Now, these years later, he's sitting in prison suffering. And you can imagine that he's knowing Christ more every day that he shares in the sufferings of Christ. So every day that he sits in that prison He knows Jesus better. And the more he knows Jesus better, the more convinced he is that God is guarding his salvation and God is guarding his reward for being faithful. So he tells Timothy, don't be ashamed. And the message he was trying to get across to Timothy is the same message God wants to get across to us tonight. Don't turn our back on Jesus. In the face of opposition, in the face of hostility, In the face of the weakness of my own flesh. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. Because we know him. And because we know what he's done for us. Next week we'll start with verse 13. Let's pray.